just want to thank uh, my dad and uh, all of you for the opportunity to come here tonight and the opportunity to preach. I'll never try to turn it down, and uh, it's a blessing. I'll grab a drink of water real quick. All right, so if you'd turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew in chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, and we'll get there in just a few moments. I have currently uh, finished my third semester at Heartland Baptist Bible College. It's been a blessing. I found that you learn a lot more if you stay awake in class, but um, that's always a blessing. And uh, it's really been a great opportunity at Heartland, and I really thank God for it. It can be difficult at times, and, uh, but I, find, I found that you learn most when it's most difficult. And that's the, the lessons in life that are most important are the ones you're going to learn through difficulty, because nothing in life comes easy, as they say. And also, I, it's really uh, just a blessing to be able to come home for Christmas, although I love the college there in Oklahoma. And uh, what a blessing the professors and the staff and my fellow students have been. It is incredibly wonderful to be back in New York instead of Oklahoma. School's wonderful, but uh, I can't say a lot for Oklahoma. It's a blessing also to be able to come home this summer. Last summer I traveled with the VBS team, and I learned a lot through that. And like I said, it's just going to be good to be home and to work with my dad. And I'm looking forward to the things I'm going to be able to do and the things I'm going to be able to learn and hopefully be a blessing to the ministry here. I'd like to, tonight, I'd like to bring a message before you, something that uh, God, through my Bible reading and my devotions at school, something that I noticed, and it's, it's what we would call one of the paradoxes of Scripture. I mean, there's paradoxes in life. We find, I find them personally intriguing. It's like a mystery, trying to figure out how in the world does this work. Paradoxes like honest politicians, that doesn't make sense. And you find paradoxes, something that is completely backwards of the way it should be. And there is this question of trying to figure out why is it this way? Why does it work this way? It's a question in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1 that the disciples brought to Jesus. But before we read that, I want to give you just a little bit of backstory. In Matthew chapter 17, the, the disciples have been following Jesus. Depending on who, whose chronology you use, be roughly two, possibly even three years at this point, they've been following Jesus. Jesus has been performing miracles, proclaiming the coming of his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 17, the preceding chapter, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up into the mountain, and he'd been transfigured before them. That means he had left his cloak of humanity, and he had revealed to them just a little glimpse of who he was as God. It says that Moses and Elijah were there with him, and Peter was just enthralled. He was like, whoa, this is awesome. And he had to open his mouth. He's like, God, let's let's build three tabernacles. We're going to build one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's like, this is incredible. We get to see this. And it says that a bright and shining light and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And they fell on their faces. They were scared out of their minds. I would be too, and I'm pretty sure you would be as well. But it says that Jesus touched them. And in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 8, you can turn there if you'd like, and it says, And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. We could spend all night. In fact, many sermons, many books, People have done it. They're good. You should read them about this one passage right here about seeing Jesus only. The disciples at this point were completely focused on Jesus. That was the only thing in Peter, James, and John's 
eyesight at that point in time. But we find, as we continue on, and if you look in the parallel accounts, as you look, that they had become slightly distracted from seeing only Jesus as they ought to. In the Christian life, we as believers need to be focused upon Jesus only because he is the true source of everything. We would not be breathing without the grace of Jesus Christ. It's a simple fact. But yet we find that they had become distracted. In the parallel accounts, we see that they were going to Capernaum and that there was a bit of an argument among the disciples. They were arguing back and forth. Now, I mean, if you get a group of guys together, the more guys you have, the bigger the problem gets, the more chance there's going to be some type of argument. Now, whether there's arguing for fun, guys like to argue. I like to argue. It's fun. I can argue about just about anything, whether I'm serious about it or not. Arguing is fun. But apparently this was not necessarily a fun type of argument because the nature of the argument. They had this burning questions in their minds. They were arguing back and forth. From what we can tell, this probably came a pretty heated argument. These guys were pretty serious about this. And whether, depending on how the harmony of the different accounts works together, what exactly, whether they, Jesus asked them or they brought the question to Jesus or Jesus asked them what they were arguing about on the way first and then they brought the question to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, if you'd read with me, and Matthew chapter 18, pardon me, verse 1, and it says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They had this question for Jesus. They wanted to know who was the greatest. This is what they'd been arguing about. Whether Peter was greater, or whether John was greater, or James, or even Bartholomew, who's no one ever heard of. He was one of the twelve. But they were arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had already sent them out to minister and even do miracles in his name, and possibly they were arguing about who had the most notches on their disciples' belt. You know, hey, I led three people have to follow after Jesus, and then Peter's over here, and he's like, bruh, I got you on that one. There were four blind men, and they can all see now. I am way better. And they were arguing back and forth. In fact, this may have gotten heated. You know, guys, they, they, they were getting after it there. They were trying to decide who was better than the other disciples. And this became an argument between them. It became a matter of pride to decide who was the very best. Now, I would like to believe that this was out of a motive of trying to be the best for Jesus. Because you've got to know, okay, Jesus is ultimately, they had already decided that Jesus was their Messiah. Jesus was ultimately the leader and the greatest. But if Jesus was the greatest up here, then I'm going to be right here. I'm going to be better than everyone else. I'm going to be the best disciple. I'm going to have my dimple just perfect. I'm going to have my suit just right. I'm going to carry my Bible right there. I'm going to be the best disciple for Jesus. I'm going to heal as many blind men. I'm going to do the best miracles. I'm going to be the greatest. And so they've been arguing back and forth to each other, who's the greatest? And they had to settle this problem. So if you're going to settle the problem, who's second to Jesus, you should ask Jesus who's second to him because he should know, right? So they brought this question to Jesus, whether this was under duress, as I've spoken before, under Jesus' direction or under their own, the question was brought to Jesus. This is a pretty important question. They've been arguing back and forth about this, and Jesus wanted to answer them in a dramatic way. He wanted to explain to them in a way that they wouldn't forget. Something that would illustrate so they could see what they're doing. And it says in verse 2, 
And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily, that little word means pay attention, listen up, because what I'm about to say is important. So pay attention, listen up, because what Jesus is about to say is important. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, hold up. Hold everything. This doesn't make sense to me. If you look at this, Jesus said, so what you need to do, you want to know who's greatest? He calls a small tiny child, possibly an infant, possibly one who could walk on its own. But this was obviously an underage child, someone who needed to be cared for. He says, you want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He calls this little child, possibly puts him on his knee. He says, you want to be the greatest. See this little child right here? You've got to humble yourself as this little child. The same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't make sense. That's like saying... Less is more, which doesn't make sense either. But in the God's kingdom, it does make sense. And we're going to see that in a few moments. But God was saying, Jesus was saying to his disciples, if you're going to be the greatest, you need to humble yourself and be as this little child. You say, what is that word, humble? Well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word humble would be meaning having a low estimate of one's importance, worthiness, or merits. Be marked by the absence of self-exaltation. Lowly, the opposite of being proud. Now, if we look at this illustration, we could take it literally and we could say, okay, God wants me to be God wanted the disciples to be humble, and he wanted them to start crawling around like little children, drooling more frequently, begging for small toys. That's what God wanted them to do. No, no. This is an illustration. This is Jesus illustrating to them how they need to be, and not illustrating, okay, so then I need to be pouting, I need to practice my poochy lip, I need to be an obnoxious child who yells and screams when he doesn't get what he wants. This is not what he's speaking of at all. But what he's speaking of in this passage is Jesus is illustrating the characteristics that a believer who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven should have. If the greatest believer, the person who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that person should exemplify these characteristics. And those characteristics are the good characteristics of a small child. And some of those characteristics would be children, you know, children are naturally trusting. In a relationship between a father and a son, or an infant and its mother, you know what? That child is completely trusting of their father. Have you ever seen a small infant child telling its mother how to take care of it? The child can't even talk for himself. That child is completely dependent upon its parents when a father wants to play a game with his small child, usually that child, if it's a well-behaved child, is going to want to play with their dad. And even if their dad wants to do something that could even 
get that child, cause that child some pain or possibly injury, that child's like, yeah, Dad, let's go. Let's do this. Let's go jump off a cliff. Now, usually that doesn't happen, thankfully. But that trust of the father, that child has not developed its own sense of taking care of itself now as an adult. We want them to be able to do that. We don't want a child to grow up and be 40 years old and still be coddling around following his father and playing games with their father. We want that child to develop into adult. But the characteristic that Jesus wants the disciples to understand was that a child should be trusting. You know, children also have an incredible capacity for tender affections of others. Children can be some of the most loving people in the entire world because they don't have the malice and the different things in their hearts that would get in the way of them loving another person. Children also will readily believe and are not prone to doubting you. I love telling stories to children because they will believe anything you say. The best part is a little, little sibling comes up to you and asks you a question and you can tell them an answer that's totally out of, out of this world. And then they go ask Dad and they're like, Dad, is this true? Because Stephen said it was true. Dad's like, where in the world did you get that? Of course, you're just making it up just for fun, but it's not necessarily the best policy. But children will believe just about anything you tell them. And Jesus uses this picture to illustrate how to be the greatest believer. The process of becoming a believer in Christ, it says in verse 3, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. They're coming to Jesus and they're asking, we want to know who's the greatest. And Jesus is telling them, except ye be humble and be converted as a little child, you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven and become a believer. As believers today, we can see that if you know, if you remember how you got saved, you had to humble yourself and become as a child and trust without doubting upon your heavenly Father for his salvation and not your own. Jesus is saying, you want to know who's the greatest is because you're raised up in pride. You need to understand you need to understand that it takes the humility of a child to even enter into the kingdom of heaven. Never mind, ascend to the greatest. And then Jesus continues and says in verse 5, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that, it, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. As Jesus continues, he's saying in verse 6, or verse 5 rather, 
that we should receive these lowly brethren, now not referring just to the children, but to a new believer in Christ, a new follower, one who is very new and not necessarily understanding of how to follow Christ, but we should receive them on the basis of their relationship with Christ. And that same principle is true for every believer. I don't receive another believer in Christ, another fellow student at Heartland, because I think he's a cool dude and he's got a nice truck and he's going to take me places, but rather I receive him as a friend on the basis of his relationship in Christ, the same as I would receive another brother in Christ who doesn't have a truck, doesn't even have a bicycle or any money, and is really not even a cool dude. But I should receive them both based on their our together relationship with Christ just as a little child. And Jesus continues in verse 6, we need to receive them all together is what he's telling his disciples but whoso shall offend them, woe unto that offender. And as Jesus continues through this passage, you can tell us what he says. The offenses are going to come. It's part of life. Those trials and those offenses are in control. Jesus is in control of them. And as uh, it's defined, uh, an offense would be strike, like uh, in the, uh, like once again to the Oxford English Dictionary, it speaks of striking the foot against something and stumbling, literally and figuratively or a cause of spiritual or moral stumbling, an occasion of unbelief, doubt, disbelief, or apostasy, condition of being disregarded or disfavored. An offense would be something that would cause another believer in Christ, whether that would be an action or something, and, and, or the way I treat someone else or the way I think of them or the way even I would speak to them. If something I did would cause another believer in Christ or even a lowly believer like that child, to become, to stumble, to fall, to lose, to doubt their belief in Christ. Jesus says, woe unto that person. Offenses are going to come, like he says. It's part of life. If you're alive, you've been offended. And if you're alive, you're going to probably offend someone else. Some of us are just naturally, like myself, more offensive than others. It's what happens. And Jesus is in control of those trials and in control of how those affect. We can't control other people's response to what we do. But what we can do is control our actions and our thoughts to keep from offending another brother. The offenses are going to come, but woe unto that person by whom those offenses come. And Jesus gives You've got to take some drastic action to his disciples. He says, the offenses that would keep you from coming, getting into the kingdom of heaven, you should cut your hand off, cut your foot off, literally pluck your eye out. Not literally. It's a hyperbole. It's something Jesus is exaggerating to his disciples to emphasize the point that is so important that they become a believer, or, or that others become a believer, rather, and it's so important not to offend other believers in Christ that they should figuratively go to the extent that they would cut their very leg off if that leg would keep them from getting into heaven or offend another believer in Christ. And he says in verse 10, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in, their, in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Why? Because every believer is so important to God, even the lowly believers. Jesus was illustrating, he took one point. They were arguing with each other about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
and whether that, that kingdom would be both the spiritual kingdom and the disciples, if you'd study their mindset, the Pharisees had um, the, they believed in their interpretation of the prophecy of Jesus' coming, the Messiah, that he would bring his kingdom literally in that world at that time, and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, so their belief, from what we can tell, would have been that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom, destroy the Roman Empire, and set up his kingdom on earth. They didn't understand at that point that he was coming to die for our sins. And they wanted to be first in line. They wanted to be the greatest in his kingdom. And yet Jesus was showing them through this story, through illustrating through this small child, that to be the greatest was to humble themselves and be like a small child. It was so important to humble themselves because in their pride they were arguing with each other. And they were causing each other argument which is, and pride, which is not good, and causing each other to stumble. And that same pride would cause others to stumble and even keep other people from believing in Christ. I've met many people throughout the country, even some of my coworkers, who won't believe in Christ because of the testimony of other Christians. And that testimony is that pride that's, keep, that's causing that other person to stumble. And Jesus was illustrating this. And you say, well, great story. Today is New Year's Day, so happy New Year's. Those disciples sure need a lot of help. You know what? Don't leave me yet because this is more than an ancient story about the disciples who are following Jesus. This is an incredible concept that if we can apply it to our lives, it'll help. It'll help us live for God tomorrow. Because unfortunately, we're human too, and we're very much like those disciples. Because in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must humble yourself and believe in a childlike faith. If, like I said earlier, if you're going to be saved, you have to humble yourself. You are incapable of reaching heaven on your own. If you're saved in here tonight, then you had to humble yourself and believe in God's salvation. God came to this earth and he led his disciples for one purpose. His purpose was to die on the cross and redeem us from our sins. And it's important that you become like a child and in childlike faith, Believe on Jesus Christ. If you're not saved tonight, I pray that you would be saved tonight. And that you would give up your pride and humble yourself before God. And when you humble yourself before God, you can be saved. And so that God can do the work and accept His work in your life of salvation. And that was the first point that Jesus was explaining. Accept you become as a child. But you know what else the disciples had? The disciples had been with Jesus. They had just saw him, seen him, trans- three of them had just seen him transfigured. They had done miracles for Jesus. They had been with him for this entire time. And yet they had become one little word. It's familiar. They had become familiar with the things of God and with God himself and with Jesus and his miracles that even in the presence of God, they were arguing with each other over who was the greatest. When really what they should have realized is that they were not the greatest themselves, but that Jesus was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God has no equals or even second in command. The, the biblical paradox that he's showing them is that there is God in heaven who has come down to save us for our sins, and then there are only sinners 
saved by grace in His kingdom. There are no greatest. There are no super Christians. Now, I believe there are heroes of the faith. There are men like my father and Pastor Gaddis and Pastor Sam Davison, men who I look up to and would like to emulate. But yet, we are all sinners saved by grace. And the disciples had become familiar with the things of God. And we, as Christians today, can have the same problem. We can become so familiar with church and reading our Bibles that we can attempt to do the things of God and live for God in our own power. And when we do that, we are raised up in pride, thinking we can do it ourselves and what happens is we can offend our brothers and so, our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are raised up in that pride thinking i can do it ourselves every sin that we ever commit is linked to pride when you look back to its original motive if you study it out you can see that every sin is linked to pride thinking that we're better than others that we're better than Jesus Christ himself and we need to be very careful from following in that trap. The disciples thought they were greater than others, and that, that each and individual were greater than others. They were arguing with themselves, and yet they couldn't see who was the greatest among them. And Jesus gives them a clear, in the Bible and in our word for us today, we can see a clear example of how to destroy and eradicate pride in our lives. Well, today is the New Year's, the first day of 2017. Never thought we'd make it this far, and the world is still turning. And in this new year, what would be better than to follow Christ's example and illustration that he gives us of how to live without pride? Because we cannot live for God or be used for God when we are raised up in pride. The first example Jesus gives is becoming as a little child and humbling yourself. Go back to the foot of the cross. Realize how you got saved and humble yourself. Remember that you're just a sinner saved by grace. Put God in his right perspective. Remember that God is Lord is Lord of all. And except for God's grace that I would be on my way to hell. And when we put God in his correct place, we realize how much we are in need of God's help. Just like the disciples, when they real, remembered who Jesus was and that he was the greatest, they realized how insignificant we are. But yet God still considers us and still came down to die for our sins. We need to draw, when we put God in perspective, we need to realize how great and powerful our God is. I'm so glad that I am a Christian and I believe in this book because our God is more powerful than any other God. And yet, sometimes we neglect to draw close to Him. You know, one of the best, the most important way of drawing close to God is through Bible reading and praying. In fact, we have a little schedule for reading our Bible every day. If you want a daily plan for eradicating pride in your life, it's called that daily Bible reading calendar. And we have them free. Every day when you get up in the morning or at night or whenever you're able to do your devotions and pray and remember who God is, you are acknowledging who God is in your life. 
and that to be the greatest disciple is to humble yourself and serve God in humility. And you can't serve God in humility if you don't remember who God is and spend time with him every day. Remember that as Christians, we're all on the same level. And a trap that we can fall into, something that I've fallen into even at school, is God brought to my attention how much pride there was in my life. Pride that I'm a, I'm a PK. I'm a pastor's kid. So I got this all down. Some of the terminology we use, you have MKs, missionary kids, and pastor's kids, and everyone else are just wicked people. Not quite. That's not the case at all. But yet I could think I'm so great and realize, and then again, then God would bring to my attention how much pride was in my life. And I would say, oh God, you have, I realize this, thank you for bringing this to my attention. And I would pray and says, you know, I need to spend time praying and I need to spend time reading my Bible and working on this. God, would you please remove this pride from my life? And I would focus so much on this and yet I would forget Philippians chapter 2. And if you get Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, if you turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You say, we need to humble ourselves. I need to focus on humbling myself. And you know what you're doing? You're focusing on yourself, which is pride. It's like, how did I get here? I'm trying to get out of this pride, and I'm coming right back to it. But yet, here is what God's plan is focus on Him and focus on others and you won't be focused on yourself and trying to make yourself the greatest disciple of Jesus ever the world has ever seen. It's so simple and yet it can be so complicated because we're humans and everything's got to be complicated. Everything's got to have a 42,000 step plan, especially furniture made by Ikea. And yet, when we focus on God, we remember who He is and our relationship to Him. And then when we focus and esteem the things of others, we realize that we're no better than anyone else, but we're all sinners saved by grace. When we're serving God, we cannot accomplish anything when we are filled with pride because God's power cannot flow through a person already operating on their own power. And then, you know, as a young child, I loved working with my dad. I would, we, my dad was very uh, involved in we, the, uh, renovating this entire building. He's continued that working on uh, North Brooklyn or Union Baptist Church. And I'm excited about helping out with that in the summer or whatever capacity I'm able to. But as a small child, I loved working with my dad because what dad was doing was important to me. And I was going to help dad, whether he wanted me to or not. Now, it's probably about six to eight in different times, you know, and every day was a different day for me as a small child. But I would love to help Dad, and I would get so wrapped up in what he was doing, and my dad would be working on a particular project, even sometimes thinking out loud, well, how are we going to fix this? Oh, pick me! i got a great idea! And I would lay out a wonderful plan in my small, childlike mind of how Dad was going to repair this whole thing and even attempt to do it for him. In fact, one time I ended up electrocuting myself doing that. It's a great day. And yet I couldn't see 
that dad was the one in charge and not me. I was just trying to help dad. And yet we as Christians can do the same thing. We can act as little two-year-olds and six-year-olds and go, oh, God, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach junior church for you. I'm going to babysit those kids in the nursery. And I'm going to teach them the fear of the Lord. But what really made the days go well is when I was willing just to be dad's helper. If that meant sweeping up the floor, taking out the garbage, holding that one tool for three hours until he needed it again, whatever little job he would let me do, when I was just willing to do whatever, you know what, we got a lot of work done that day. And at the end of the day, I used to love doing this as a child, I would come up to dad and I would say, dad, did I help you today? Did I do a really good job? And being that my father loved me, if it was a good day and I had listened to him, he would give me a big old hug say, yes, you helped me today. And that feeling inside, it's the best day ever for me. And I would sleep quite contentedly at night. You know what? That's the paradox that Jesus is talking about. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 through 10, Paul is speaking, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you see it? When you humble yourself like that little child, God can save your soul. When you humble yourself in service for God, that same humility it took to get saved is the same humility that will let you serve God. Can you see it? Paul was speaking of some, we're not exactly sure, a horrible type of possibly physical affliction, and yet through that it was to remind him to be humble and to serve God through God's power Because when Paul was weak in his flesh, then God was strong and the power of God could work. At the end of our lives, when it's time to enter into the kingdom of heaven, see if we're the greatest believer ever, if we've done it in our own pride, if we've tried to serve God at work, at home, at church, in our own power, under our own Abilities in our own pride, trying to be better than any other disciple, better than any other sophomore at Heartland Baptist Bible College, having the best GPA of 5.70,000. It will all be worthless because it was done in my own power and not in God's. And when we simply surrender ourselves and humbly do and trust in God like a little child working for their dad, at the end of their life, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Tonight, humility is incredibly important. I would love to stand up here tonight and tell you, after three years in Bible college, I've got it made. I am the epitome of humility. And you're laughing because that is the most ridiculous statement. It's something that I struggle with every day. I believe it's something that as believers we all struggle with. 
But humility is incredibly important. Every sin is linked to pride. In fact, it was so terrible that, God, that Jesus was willing to use a drastic illustration of washing his own disciples' feet to teach them humility and service. Pride affects our relationship with God and fellow believers every day. This new year, let's consider who God is. As our theme is, let's draw close to him. Cut off that foot. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you tonight. I pray that we could truly realize...